welcome to the Womb Wisdom Podcast. My name is Holly Lever, and I'm the owner and operator of Rosebud Wellness, where I practice women's holistic health, utilizing acupuncture, Chinese herbalism, yoni steaming, and Arvigo abdominal massage. And I'm also a mother to a 14-month-old daughter. This podcast will be part information on women's holistic health practices and part conversations with women who are mothers or hope to be mothers on their journey through menstruation, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and motherhood. Please enjoy. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to the Womb Wisdom Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to bring you an interview episode with my Ashtanga yoga teacher, Pranadi Varshne. So she has a a yoga studio called Yoga Shala West in West Los Angeles, where she teaches Ashtanga, traditional Ashtanga yoga. And today, we will be talking with her about her pregnancy and birth of her three-year-old daughter, and she is also currently 31 weeks pregnant. So she'll be giving us um, lots of interesting information about both of those experiences. So please enjoy this episode with Pranadi. Okay, welcome back, everybody. I am here today with Pranadi Varshni. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name right. Um, yeah, correctly. it's Varshne. Varshne, Varsh- actually. Yeah. Cool. Um, Pranadi Varshne. And she is an Ashtanga yoga teacher. And I'm very excited to be um, chatting with her today about her um, daughter, who is three. And she's also currently pregnant. So I'm going to turn the mic over to Pranadi. And um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, well, tell us first, how far along are you in your pregnancy? Uh, sure. I'm uh, about 31 weeks, 31 and a half weeks. Right. So I'm in the third, I'm in my third trimester and then I'm feeling, you know, that third trimester stuff. I'm big, <laughs> can't sleep, <laughs> tired all the time, you know, any woman that's been pregnant, I think uh, can, could probably relate. I imagine so. Yeah. Um, So maybe we can start with your first pregnancy. Um, And actually what I've been asking women about, if it feels relevant is if you want to talk about anything about your menstrual history. And I think particularly with Ashtanga yoga practitioners, I'm curious about, um, you know, like the recognition of ladies holiday. And if that's something Mm -hmm. that you've observed, which all that ladies holiday means is that you don't practice during your period, um, or at least for the first three days is my understanding of it. Um, yeah. And so maybe you can talk about like your experience of your period, if it's been something that's um, irregular, if you experienced any pain or anything like that. Sure. I'd be happy to start there. And actually I do have a bit of a storied history um, with my menstruation. I don't remember exactly when I started menstruating, but it was in the normal sort of time frame, you know, early adolescence, probably I was in middle school, something like that. Um, and my period started and pretty soon after they started, uh, they would come, I would bleed uh, much more frequently than every 28 days. I would, I would bleed like almost every two weeks. Um, And it wasn't until I was much, much, much older that I realized that what was happening was I was bleeding during my ovulation as well. But it's funny, at that time, nobody explained to me what a cycle actually is. Nobody explained to me what's happening during during that 28, you know, roughly 28 day cycle. I didn't know what ovulation was. I didn't know anything. And so, you know, my, I, this was happening. I was bleeding a lot. Obviously that's not ideal to be bleeding that much. And so I went to my mom with this and we went, we talked to my pediatrician um, and she put me on birth control. And I think that's a really common story. A lot of women have is that they have irregular periods early on and then they're put on birth control. And I was on birth control, hormonal birth control for, I don't a decade, like something like that. Um, at least 10 years, I think. Uh, <clears throat> and 
then, you know, a lot changes in 10 years. I was no longer or a teenager. I was a young adult and I had, was just so used to taking this hormonal birth control, but I started to have this feeling like maybe this is not right for me to be so dependent on, on this. And so I went to a doctor when I was a young adult. I don't remember exactly what age, probably early 20s. And uh, I told her I wanted to stop. And she said, okay, or maybe I just stopped. Maybe, I don't remember if I even asked the doctor, but I somehow stopped taking the birth control. Um, and around that time, I had lost a significant amount of weight. This is a whole another part of my story, but I had practiced a lot of like restricted eating. I was exercising like crazy. Um, I had lost a, a lot of weight. And so I stopped, I had lost a lot of weight and I stopped my hormonal birth control and I basically stopped having periods. I stopped having periods altogether for a while, a year or longer. Um, and then I was like, well, maybe this isn't right either. So then I went to a doctor and again, she said, oh, okay, well, you haven't had periods for a while. Let's give you more hormones. And so I got a, a couple doses of really strong hormones. I don't remember like what, what they were um, or what the name of the drug was, but I got a couple doses of really strong hormones. And from what I remember, they didn't actually, I, I do believe they jump-started my period, but again, it wasn't regular. I was still not feeling like I had a regular cycle. Um, I would still have mid-cycle bleeding pretty often. And then I started practicing yoga and I was practicing casually. Um, then I undertook a daily practice. And I think within a month of me practicing daily, I had a regular period. It was really remarkable to me to experience that. And I should say that not only did I start practicing yoga every day, I stopped, I was eating much better. I wasn't restricting my calories. I also stopped doing like heavy, heavy cardio that I was doing. I wasn't, you know, trying to lose weight. In fact, I gained weight during that time uh, and my regular cycle came back and it's been pretty regular ever since. Uh, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that, the personal journey that I've been on because it really demonstrated to me, at least in my own body, uh, that having a healthy hormonal cycle is indicative of overall health in my female body. Was it Ashtanga that you started when you first started yoga or was it different form? It was, it was Ashtanga. I'm, I think I'm one of the fortunate few that sort of discovered Ashtanga yoga early on in my yoga journey. And then I never really looked back. Um, I can just hugely relate to your whole story put on birth control 10 years, yeah. eating, like not getting a period. It's just, it's a very, very unfortunately common story. I think for our generation that that was kind of, I hope yeah. it, it's changing, but. Well, you know, Holly, it's really interesting. I just read some, like an op-ed in the New York times by this OB who is advocating for women basically from the onset of menarche to just be on birth control, not, not just regular birth control, but birth control that actually is constant. So you don't even have the placebo days and you just, uh, you just skip your periods. You, you bleed maybe like, you know, three, four times a year or something. And advocating that as the, like, like a non-harmful approach. And you know, I don't want to say that's wrong. It could be right for some women. Uh, but to really discount any harmful impacts of that is, a, I feel, pretty irresponsible. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think that the, the biggest concern for me as a women's health practitioner is that women aren't fully educated about the potential impacts of that. It's just sort of like, this is what's best for you. And there's no negative behind this. If a woman has all of the information and then still decides to go down that path, great. But yes, I think most of the time, like you and I, 
didn't have any information at all. So it's not like we were actually making an informed decision. Yeah, exactly. And we don't talk about any negative impacts of hormonal birth control. Um, because I think, you know, on the whole, hormonal birth control has been great in terms of family planning. We don't want to take that choice away from women, obviously. You know, we want women to be able to plan when they're going to get pregnant. But I just, looking back, I'm just so, so in shock that nobody even explain to me, like, what are the days within your monthly cycle that you can actually get pregnant? This was not something that I learned until I was like a full blown adult. Like, why wasn't that a part of sex education? It's such a basic thing to know for a young adult, you know, like, when can I actually get pregnant? Uh, it it you, just, it, sorry, when you were trying to get pregnant, yeah. Is that kind of how you learned about it or? I, I think I had, I've, I had figured it out at some point before, before we tried, because the first time we tried to get pregnant, I already knew, and we were very fortunate that we got pregnant right away. Like I, you know, I, I'm like a, can be a little type A in, in certain, in certain ways. And so I was very on top of my measuring. I knew exactly when I, I was ovulating. And so it was very quick. We got pregnant, like on our first try. What were you um, measuring? Uh, my temperature. I was using an app to measure, measure my temperature every morning. Uh, and I have a very regular schedule. So for me, that was easy. You know, just roll over and sort of take the temperature. The first thing you wake up, I woke up at the same time pretty much every day. So, um, and beyond that, because of the practice, my cycle had been regular for a long time. So I had a, I had a real sense of when, you know, and also feeling in, feeling into the body. Um, I, I, the more in tune I've gotten with my inner workings, the more I've been able to actually just physically feel when I'm ovulating. I, and I'm, I wonder if you can relate to that as well. Like there are physical symptoms that, that what some women can feel when they're ovulating. So I wasn't in, in touch enough with all of that, that I had a pretty clear sense of when I could get pregnant. Um, but again, I just, it's, it's so, it's uh, interesting to me that we just don't teach this stuff. Yeah. I mean, my yeah. take home, and I've, I've heard from a lot of other women from our sex education classes is that like, if you have sex, you're going to get pregnant period. Oh my gosh. Totally. I mean, we're like, we live with, we live with that the constant fear, right? Like if you're sexually active and you're young and you're, you live with that constant fear of not only, you know, should you be on some type of birth control, you should be wearing condoms. It's like, yeah. And, and there's no nuance. There's no, no instruction on, you know, that you could get pregnant some days and you can't get, can't really get pregnant other days. Of course, you know, I'm sure there are exceptions. I'm sure. But on the whole, generally speaking, an understanding of a, of a, you know, woman's cycle, I think could be really empowering. That's when I was thinking about, you know, our time together today, I was just thinking like, could sex education from a young age be given in such a way that all these options are presented and it's empowering so that women aren't living and young girls aren't living with this fear of constantly like, I'm going to get pregnant. You know, it's like this constant fear. Yeah. I mean, especially cause I have a daughter and, and you do, I'm, I'm like, she's 15 months old and I'm already thinking about like, how am I going to talk to her about her period <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> in a way that feels like that she's not like, ew, gross mom. Or, you know, that it's just like very matter of fact, like this is how yeah. your body works and let's talk about the options and yeah. Well, you know, it starts there. young. I mean, now I'm not bleeding anymore because obviously I'm pregnant, but when I was my daughter, she's first of all, very inquisitive, very perceptive. She watches everything and she has always wanted to be like really close to me. So we're often, you know, when she, when we are together, she's, we're usually in close proximity, you know, to each other. And that has included going to the bathroom when I have been bleeding and she's seen my menstrual blood and she's seen pads and she's asked me like, what is, what is going on? Like, what is that? <laughs> you know? And I had to get over like my own sort of initial discomfort of like, oh my God, she's seeing this. Um, but I, 
a part of the way we parent is we try just try to be as honest as possible. And I just told her, this is something, you know, something that women, um, that girls, this happens to them every once in a while, they, they bleed out of their vaginas. And she like, first of all, is really into the word vagina. So she was just thought that was super awesome. Like wow, but she, then she's like, "But that's not gonna happen to me." I said, "Not until you get much older." <laughs> so she already has some, you know, awareness that this is something that is going to happen for her at some point. Um, but yeah, it is really interesting, and I thought about the same thing. How as she gets older, how can I, uh, how can I set this? conditions for her to have an empowering experience in her feminine body. Cause I, I feel like we just don't do that as a society collectively, we don't create the conditions for girls to have empowering experiences as they go through puberty. You know, it's like, yeah. And I think part of that for me is going to be giving her um, Claudia Welch's book, balance your hormones, balance your life. I don't know if she'll, if she wants to get on hormonal birth control, I'll, I think I'll be like, read this first and then we can talk about it, <laughs> which of course, like I want her to make her own decision. But like you said, I want it to be an informed decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm curious. Um, I mean, I've had my own experience with like my perception of ladies holiday um, Mm -hmm. and kind of wondering what that comes from like if it's yeah because as I I go into like women's health work it it really is uh the menstrual time is a time to go inward and do be doing this so anybody if anybody doesn't know ashtanga can be like a more like a stronger practice. And there's also a mm-hmm. lot of Banda uh, engagement, which maybe you could explain a little bit more about like what a Banda is, but it's more of like an upward mo- energetic movement um, mm-hmm. in the pelvic region, which would be the opposite of what you would want to be doing while you're actively bleeding. So I do understand it from like a physiological um and even like an emotional perspective, but I always kind of was curious if there was any like patriarchal um, women are dirty when they're bleeding. So they should yeah. come to the studio. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I felt some resistance to, and I was like, I'm going to just practice anyways. I, you can't control me and I can yes. still do this strong practice. And I, I don't know that that was like, I think it was my type A, um, attachment to the practice I don't really it wasn't really fully a this is really what my body's calling for it was a reaction to don't try to stamp me down kind of yeah thing so I'm curious yeah. your experience of ladies holiday and if it's something that you've observed um it like you know like that you actually do abstain from practice during your period yeah. um and then also yeah, like if that shifted over time for you. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I can re- relate a lot to what to what you're talking about. Um, I have always considered myself a feminist, and so when I first started practicing um, Ashtanga Yoga, I was like, "No, man, uh, no, smash the patriarchy! I'm not taking my ladies' holiday off. That's bullshit." And so, yeah, I practiced through my period, I would say for the first couple of years, at least I, I, I didn't take any days off. I practiced through like pain and cramping and all that stuff. Um, and then at some point, I don't remember how the switch happened, probably gradually, because the practice has a really um, subtle way of working on you, you know, in ways that you don't even realize. Uh, and I think it was working on me internally, even though the first couple of years of practice, I think my focus was very external, but still that work was happening inside without me realizing it. And I remember like researching, okay, so like, what is this ladies holiday like about, like, why do women take it off? And uh, everything I was finding, like when, pe- when people would like, you know, comment, on, this was kind of before Facebook and like Facebook groups and all the 
social media platforms were really very popular. But I remember reading like blogs. That was like the way that people talked about this kind of stuff at that time, blogs and comments on blogs. Um, and the people, it seemed to me like the people who were advocating for women to keep practicing or that women who themselves said that they continue to practice during their menstruating days, that it was a very external orientation. It was like uh, that they didn't want to lose any progress, you know, physical progress. And I just thought to myself, like, well, if that's the reason, like that doesn't jive with really what the practice is about, you know? And so at some point around that time, I, I stopped practicing um, during my menstruation. And I think I, I took just the first, like, like the three days. At that time, my cycle used to be pretty regular, but it would last a while, like a week, you know, a few days of heavy bleeding and then residual bleeding for a few days afterward. Um, I started taking my ladies holiday off and within, I would say within a few months, uh, my cycle was down, my bleeding days were basically down to two to three days of bleeding and I was done. And I have a little spotting maybe afterward, but there was something about allowing my body to do what it needed to do efficiently, not fighting it, that just allowed it to do that. It allowed it to, to, to release whatever it needed to release very efficiently. Uh, yeah, and that was, that was huge. Um, and, and speaking of birth control, uh, I I'm just reminded now that around this time, gosh, it's hard to like tease apart exactly what happened when, but around this time, I had also entered into a serious relationship with my now husband and, you know, had been off hormonal birth control for a while, but we were monogamous and together and we weren't ready to have children yet. So I decided to try the Paragard, uh, which is a copper IUD, it's non-hormonal. And I thought, okay, well, this is a form of birth control that's non-hormonal, it's, you know, just copper. And so, and it's just, it just goes up in there and, and then you don't have to worry about it. So I tried that um, fully expecting it to be like a godsend, you know, like, oh, this is gonna be the thing now that finally works. Um, and yes, it worked at preventing pregnancy, but it was so terrible. I had the heaviest bleeding of my entire life. And I, I kept it in there for like a year or two until I finally couldn't take it anymore. And I had it, I had it removed, but uh, yeah, that was, that was miserable. And again, I think that's something that when I was researching the copper IUDs was not really talked about that much. But then anecdotally, when I would talk to women who had had the, had the Paragard, almost all of them would tell me these horrific stories about how much they bled. Yeah, I hear that all the time too with the copper IUD. And it has been touted as kind of like the least side effect yeah. option of birth control. Um, yeah. But yeah, definitely people, some people do have really amazing ex experience with it experiences mm -hmm. with it. Um, I've never had one before, but so it's interesting to hear that that was, yeah, yeah. I hear that a lot that your experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so maybe we can talk about, um, pregnancy. So when you, when you went off of, when you got the IUD taken out, then did you, you were trying to conceive around then or? Um, no, we, that was, we, I got the IUD taken out basically because it was just, I was bleeding way too much. Um, and I have a, I'm anemic by nature. I have a history of anemia. So that additional um, heavy bleeding just made me feel incredibly fatigued all the time. Uh, and then it was, a, it was a few years after that, that we, we started to um, try to get pregnant. Uh, and again, during that time, I, because of the anemia and the fatigue, I changed my diet also changed at that point. I had been vegetarian for like, I don't know, 10 to 15 years, like a long time, basically since high school, I think. Um, and then about, yeah, I think about 15 years after that, uh, I decided to start eating meat again. 
Um, so I started eating meat and then maybe like a year or so after that, we, we started uh, trying to conceive. And like I said, it was pretty, it was pretty quick for us. And then if you can just take us through the experience of pregnancy, if you had any, um, symptoms or anything that you want to share about it and things that you did that were helpful or supportive. Mm -hmm. I know that you helped me a lot through my pregnancy of, well, I mean, I wouldn't go to, to the studio so often, but I would continue to do what you suggested um, when I would yeah. practice at home in terms of like modifications and things yeah. like that. So you don't have to talk specifically about Ashtanga because I don't know how many Ashtanga practitioners are going to listen. <laughs> Just like what you, what, yeah. um, like some basic things with yoga or with, you know, foods that you were sure. eating or any other treatments that you did. Or sure. Well, first of all, I'll just start by saying I did not enjoy being pregnant. I, I, you know, people have this like image of the glowing pregnant women. And that was not my experience, As, at least the first time. It was not at all my experience. I was sick um, at, for at least the first half of my pregnancy. I felt nauseous. I could barely eat anything. Um, yeah. And like we had planned this Italian vacation and then happened that it's just so happened that we had planned this vacation and I then I got pregnant. And I felt so bad. I didn't want to cancel it. So we ended up going to Italy, even though I was like sick all the time. And it took me like years to get over my aversion to Italian food because <laughs> I had developed such an aversion because I was there when I was in my first trimester. Um, but anyway, I love pizza again now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was, I was pretty sick uh, till about the first half of my pregnancy. And I remember because at my 20 week ultrasound, um, my husband and I were there with the maternal fetal medicine doctor who was doing the 20 week anatomy ultrasound. And my husband asked her, she had, she had like two or three kids of her own. And he asked her, so doctor, like, when does this discomfort that she's feeling, when does it end? And without skipping a beat, the doctor goes 18 years. <laughs> And then what's even funnier is that I came back and home and I was talking with my mom and we told her this story and she was like, oh no, it doesn't end after 18 years. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, we're really in for it. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, I didn't have a very pleasant experience during pregnancy, but it was a very healthy pregnancy. I had, I was very low risk. Um, yeah, the baby was healthy. I was healthy. No, really no issues at all uh, in terms of either one of our health. Um, in terms of my practice, there are varying theories out there, specifically in Ashtanga Yoga, about um, whether to take the first trimester off entirely from practice. Luckily, I had studied with enough senior teachers who had been pregnant themselves that I had a variety of perspectives and to me, it didn't feel good to not practice, even though I was physically so sick. I just felt like practice was the time that I was able to at least be in my body, you know, even though it was really uncomfortable. So I can, I, I practiced the whole time, of course, modifying as I, modifying from the beginning and, and modifying even more as I got bigger. And uh, I continued to practice pretty much until I went into labor, maybe the day before or something. Yeah, and I think I think that practice is a big part of of why uh, why I stayed healthy. It's, you know, I think it's really important for pregnant women to remain active, as active as they can. Yeah, I mean, I found the practice to be hugely supportive to I mean I think especially when it's something that's been part of your life for such a long time yeah um, yeah it just it felt and one of the things that you said to me um very early on was like to that I would separate my feet where there's a lot of mm -hmm. things where your feet are together like in sun salutations and you said to that it helps to make space for the baby and I just had yeah. that image in my mind every time I was practicing. I mean, that was from when she was like a poppy seed, yeah, you know, a like little like tiny. peanut. <laughs> but I was I was making yeah. space for her all along. And yeah. I yeah, I just I feel like just having that image helped me, 
even when I wasn't in the studio to kind of like make good decisions. Um, and then mm -hmm. I also moved um, to Connecticut. So we were, I wasn't able to go to the studio at all. Yeah. When I was it, within my third trimester and there were some things that I gradually took away just using that like base of knowledge that I got from yeah. you. Of, yeah. You know, how to continue moving forward. Right. I mean, and it's really interesting to, you know, when we're practicing before we've gotten pregnant, we're practicing just for ourselves, for our own, literally for our own bodies, you know, and of course there are ripple effects when we practice for ourselves, there are ripple effects to the wider community that we're a part of. Um, but then once we're pregnant, this is like a really visceral experience of no longer practicing just for oneself. Like you're literally practicing with another body inside of you, whether that body is the size of a peanut or right now, like, you know, the size of a cantaloupe for me, <laughs> it's going to get to the size of a watermelon eventually, you know, I mean, no matter the size, there is another body like in, inside of you. So, um, yeah, I think, I think in addition to the to keeping me physically well, um, I agree with you. I think that the practice allowed me to develop a relationship with my baby uh, before I ever met her, you know, before she came out. Even though I have to be honest, like I was so uncomfortable during pregnancy that I called her an alien the entire time until she came out. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a unique experience to feel, especially when they start moving and, and kicking. Yeah. yeah. So can you tell us about um, your labor and your birth with your first pregnancy? Anything sure. that you want to share? Anything, if you want to leave anything out, you don't have to share anything. But No, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to share. Um, I had a very uncomplicated labor. I'm very fortunate. Um, uh it was more traumatic for my husband than it was for me because we, our plan was to deliver at a local hospital. Um, and we had a doula come to our home. It was, we had, you know, I had wanted as low intervention of a birth experience as possible. Um, I was pretty low risk. So, um, and I, and I wanted to try, uh, try to labor without medication so I had these ideas of, of what we wanted our birth experience to be like, as long as it was safe. And, you know, we sat down and talked about it before and we decided that since I was a first time mom, that it made, it made sense for us to deliver at the hospital. And so our plan was to have a doula come to our home and then, you know, transfer to the hospital and deliver there. And that is what happened, but it was very dramatic because, um, I, I started having contractions at, at nighttime before I went to bed, sort of manageable ones. Can you and tell me how far along you were? Like how many weeks? Yeah, oh, I, I was 38 weeks. Yes. Yeah, it was 38 weeks. Um, and I had around 36 weeks, I had stopped. Uh, I had changed my yoga practice pretty, uh, pretty dramatically. So I was doing a very full practice till about 36 weeks. And then at 36 weeks, I started walking much more. And I stopped inverting just sort of to, again, it's like a way to, I felt a way for me to communicate to the baby that, you know, you're big enough now, you're strong enough now. And if you want to come out, like, I'm going to try to create the conditions for you to come out when you feel ready. Uh, so, so yeah, so we had to do, so my contraction started in the evening uh, but I was able to manage them. They, they weren't coming very regularly. Um, I slept off and on. And then in the morning, I would think around 8 a.m. or so, my, my contractions got much more regular, much more frequent. And so we called the doula. She came over and I labored at home for about, a, let's see, about seven hours or so. Um, and it was, I just, you know, that was about, that was in 20, January of 2018. So three plus years ago. Uh, and so I don't have a real physical memory of the sensation of labor, but I remember it being the most intense sensation that I've ever felt in my entire life. I remember thinking, 
there's no way I can keep doing this. Like, it was very hard. I, I, it was not easy. It was, I, I, it was like, you know, physically, I think the most challenging thing that I've ever done. Um, and my husband was an incredible support. He was there with me the whole time. Our doula was there helping us as well. Uh, and then around three fifty, around three-ish, you know, we live in Los Angeles. So around three-ish, my husband was like, maybe, you know, we, we don't want to get stuck in traffic. Maybe we should think about heading to the hospital. And right around then I had a like huge like urge to push something out of me. And my, that was my water, my water broke. And I was on my bed and it broke on my bed. Um, and it was like a train left the station. As soon as my water broke, my daughter was like ready to come out. I had like an incredible urge to push. Uh, but we were still at home and our plan was to deliver at the hospital. So we just frantically tried to get everything together. We, I, I got in the car with my doula and she was telling me that, that instead of pushing every time I felt the urge to push that I was supposed to pant instead. So I basically panted my way to the hospital and my husband drove like a madman <laughs> to get us there safely, but very quickly. And luckily we live pretty close to where we were planning to deliver. So we got there and um, they, I remember being in a wheelchair. So they must've put me in a wheelchair and rolled me into the, into the hospital. But I think it must've been through the ER entrance. Yeah, through the emergency room entrance. And I was so out of my mind that I wasn't really able to communicate. I was just trying to, to not, I not deliver like right there. And so, but, but the, the people who were like admitting me, they could see that I was so far along that they were hesitant to even let me go up to labor and delivery because they didn't want the baby to come out in the elevator. So at first they were planning to just have, they were trying to convince us to just like stay in the ER, but somehow my husband and my doula like convinced them that I would be able to hold the baby until we got up to labor and delivery. So I took the elevator up to labor and delivery. And I have this very distinct memory of the midwives up there. We were planning to deliver with the midwives, the midwives uh, like asking for my ID or something. And I was just like, <laughs> I just remember screaming, like I can feel the baby's head. And so then they were like, oh, like, there's no time, like get into the room. They wheeled me into a room and uh, I saw the bed that I was supposed to, you know, deliver on. And I remember asking my doula, like, do I have to lie down? Like, what do I have to do? And she was like, no, 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 you just go on all fours because I had been on all fours, basically my whole labor. And so she's like, just go on all fours. I got on all fours, like somebody took my underwear off. I don't know who. And I just pushed and her head came out and I pushed again and her whole body was out. Like it was crazy. It was so fast. And we had not, um, we had decided not to uh, know the sex of the baby. So we didn't know. And she came out and I remember like, you know, I was on all fours and somebody just sort of handed her to me and I turned and I was just like, what, what is it? What is it? You know? <laughs> and I was like, Oh, it's a girl. And then, yeah. And then she was just, there and I was you know in like I was high I was like in ecstasy like here with my daughter and just tears and it's funny because it was a very dramatic that especially that ride to the hospital but I ended up getting like the exact type of birth that I wanted because there was no time for anybody to do anything to me <laughs> like literally no time you know all the things that they would have done before I delivered, like even, you know, take my blood or any testing or anything like that, it all happened after. And I, and I was so, I was so high from the birth that I had like very little awareness of even what was being done to me. But, but my husband's, my husband would tell this story differently. <laughs> the events all happened the way they did, but his experience was very different. Yeah, I bet. Have you ever heard it <laughs> referred to as labor land? 
No, but that is, that is a great term. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> it really is an altered state of consciousness. Like it can, yes. hours can pass and it feels like two seconds. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. very, yeah. It's, it's a unique experience. It is. Yeah. So what was your um, postpartum phase like? Was your husband home? Did you have yeah. other supports or anything that you found, like practices that you did or things you prepared mm-hmm. in advance that you found helpful? Yeah, I, I, had, I had done some reading on um, how important the postpartum period was. So I had a sense that it was a time to really take care, uh, not just of the baby, but of myself. Uh, and I think the most supportive thing during that time was that my parents came. So we had, we had a very uncomplicated birth. And so we were released from the hospital in less than 24 hours after my daughter came and we got home. And I think within an hour or two, my parents were there, uh, and they live across the country. So they had taken, they had hopped on a flight as soon as they found out that I had given birth. Actually, um, my husband had texted them when I was in labor and they were just like getting their stuff together. And then like I had already delivered and they're like, okay, so they got, they got in a plane and came. Uh, and yeah, they were there basically from the beginning. That was just an incredible support. I can't even tell you as a first time mom. Um, yeah, having my mother there was incredible. You know, she taught me like how to do oil massage for the baby. And that became something that, uh, Debbie and I did for a long time, you know, before her bath every night, we would do an oil massage. Um, and you know, I didn't have to worry about cooking. My mom cooked basically everything for me at that time. My dad is also like a baby whisperer and he would just rock Debbie until, you know, she fell asleep and, uh, yeah, it was a really, I, I'm really, really grateful to have had their support during that time. Um, and at the same time, it's really interesting because there are ways in which I felt really unsupported, not by them or anybody, you know, in my family, but just by the system at large. Um, I felt like the baby came and my health and well being were just like not at all a concern for anybody, uh, in the, in the, in the medical system, the concern, you know, was the baby and I was breastfeeding and at, you know, those first few days, she, Debbie wasn't gaining as much weight as they would have liked. So that was the main concern. And, and it, it wasn't a very long journey for us in that sense. Like my, my supply picked up pretty quickly, so I didn't have to supplement at all, but I remember just feeling so like, it's so bad that like, you know, pediatricians were basically trying to threaten me with like formula if I didn't get my protect, my uh, supply up and stuff. And, and uh, yeah, Davi had like so many visits within the first few weeks of her life to make sure she was growing and all that stuff. And I had zero, like nobody to checked in on me at all until my six week postpartum appointment at which again there was no concern about like how are you actually doing it was just okay you're healed you're cleared for sex like that was basically the extent of my postpartum care you know uh and I'm I mean I'm so fortunate I had a very uncomplicated labor and delivery but but so many friends of mine had much more complicated situations, much more traumatic situations, and still felt completely just abandoned after their birth, you know, Um, I think, and I think it's shockingly common, this experience that women have postpartum. Yeah, I agree. Um, I worked with home birth midwives, and I think that because of that, they tend to give you a little bit more individualized care um so I they came um to my house and yeah I mean I I do feel like even in that context like without having the support that I had um I would have felt really abandoned too and I same thing I had a very uncomplicated 
um, birth. And I just can't imagine like if having a C-section and like, especially yeah. after you've been trying to push out a baby for however long, yeah. um, that, yeah, like how little support there is around that is pretty messed up. Yeah. So, um, then maybe you can talk about, um, early motherhood, you know, like if you stayed home for a period of time, mm-hmm. um, yeah. when you went back into the, the studio and sort of, yeah, like what that has looked like in terms of yeah. care. And- yeah. Um, so my parents stayed with us for a few weeks, like four, four or five weeks. Uh, and then they went back and we continued to have incredible support actually from the Oak community and set up a meal train for me. So I had people bringing us meals for another few weeks after that, which was just so, so helpful. Um, And yes, I stayed home for about three and a half months. I took maternity leave for about three and a half months. Um, And it's really funny before I talk about like that sort of work, motherhood balance although all of motherhood is work so we should just say that at the outset it doesn't matter if you work outside the home or inside the home it's it's all work um but something that that that's coming up for me uh in that in that you know that postpartum time is just how messed up our cultural expectations are about that time um about simple things like baby sleep um, I remember having these notions that my baby should be like sleeping at night. <laughs> and then you have a baby, especially if you're a breastfeeding mom, you have a baby and you realize, oh my God, babies don't, babies don't sleep at night. Like, <laughs> you know, and then I, so I had this experience and then, and then, and then the, the prevailing notion is that, oh, by three months, like they'll be like sleeping through the night. Oh my gosh, that was so, so far from my experience. You know, um, my daughter is three now. And to be quite honest, she only started sleeping through the night like six months ago. And we still sleep in the same room. <laughs> so um, I just think we're so, we're so not honest about the experience of early parenthood whether it's motherhood or fatherhood or you know whatever like early parenthood is it can be a brutal time it's it's demanding and um like you had asked at the very beginning like are there things that you know you wish you knew or you could have tell tell yourself now and one of the things is like for me specifically around just letting go of these cultural expectations that we have in this in this western society specifically Um, about how quickly babies are supposed to be independent from us. I remember so many times like at night or in the day when Thavi wasn't napping or something like, you know, being on my phone, like looking at stuff online, which is really the worst thing that you can do when you're already feeling anxious about like, why is this so hard for me? You know, why isn't my baby sleeping? Why isn't my baby doing this or that or whatever, achieving this milestone. Um, it's, it's totally warped. Like, yeah, that's something that I, that I am looking forward now to having this opportunity to do, to go through that infancy and newborn, even the whole first year again, and just having much less anxiety about, about the sleep or, you know, anything like that about achieving certain milestones and just a lot less really, really focusing on the relationship between me and my baby and, and trying to give the baby as much as he or she needs uh, within, within the bounds of what I can handle, you know, and not worrying about trying to get the baby to, to just like, you know, do this or that independently without me. And, and I'm really fortunate in a way, cause my, my daughter is, was pretty willful, even as a baby, like she, she let me know when she wasn't down with something. So even though I would try to like get her to do this or that, she would make it very clear to me, even as a baby that she, that that wasn't cool with her. And it started early on, like within the first, like the, our plan, we've always, 
my husband and I have slept on a mattress on the floor for a long time. And so our plan was to have her in like a sidecar type of um, floor crib with like an opening on the side. So basically she would be right next to us. And so that's how she slept for the first several weeks of her life, but she slept terribly. She would like up all the time and uncomfortable. And I had always thought like, well, we're not going to be a co-sleeping family. Like she's not going to sleep in our bed. (laughs) That lasted a few weeks. (laughs) And yeah, within a few weeks, I was like, this is not working. And I just put her in the bed with us. And it wasn't like it was some miracle cure. Like she suddenly slept through the night. No, but it was so much better than what we were doing before. You know, for us, it worked, it worked much better. Um, And we, co-slept for so long and we basically still co-sleep because she sleeps right next to me and what has happened as a result I think of me having a daughter who's been very communicative about what she needs um, is that then I started doing all this research into like okay well I don't think this is actually abnormal like I think this behavior that she's exhibiting is actually normal behavior for an infant for a baby even for like a two-year-old so what is the deal like is society abnormal? Like what's going on? So I started researching a lot into more indigenous forms of parenting. You know, what did hunter gatherers do? How do they take care of their babies? How do they take care of young children? And I realized like, yeah, like we're, we're not crazy. My baby is not crazy. Like she's designed to want to be close to me. You know, this is her nature and I'm going to do whatever I can within again, while honoring my own boundaries my own edges, I'm going to do whatever I can to meet her needs. And I just started realizing, though, actually, like our Western society is really backward in terms of in terms of how we um, how we parent in those in those early years, especially. And so, again, that's I'm really looking forward to having that base level of knowledge now so that I don't have to have to have this internal fight so much the second time around. I can just sort of rest in the awareness um, that other cultures have been parenting in a much more holistic, community-centric, like, you know, honoring the needs of children. Um, this is actually like how, how humans are evolved to parent. Did your, did anybody like in your immediate circle um, kind of back at you about the co-sleeping, like whether your partner or your family or or was it? No, I'm so fortunate. It's, it was mostly stuff on, and I actually never really experienced pushback in terms of the co-sleeping. Um, but at, for some reason, like I, at, before I had my daughter, I just was like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. Like that doesn't seem like something that I'd want to do because I'm a very sensitive sleeper. Now it's funny. I've had issues with insomnia, like for a long time, basically my entire adult life, but having a baby knock on wood has basically like cured my insomnia except for when I'm pregnant like it's hard to sleep when you're super pregnant um but but having my daughter for for a variety of reasons has really really helped my insomnia so actually my sleep has improved uh since since she came along um but yeah I didn't experience that pushback from anybody in my immediate circle and again one way in which I'm really fortunate is that you know I I, I'm from India my parents uh I spent the first several years of my life there and um, my parents co-slept with me for a long time until I don't even, I don't remember like ever moving out of their bed, but at some point I did. And I asked them like, when did I move out of your bed? And they're like, I don't know. We don't remember, you know, (laughs) just whenever it made sense. Um, And so it's, it's very, it's a very normal thing in our family that we all sleep together. And now we have a second baby coming and and Tavi doesn't have her own room and she still has not asked for her own room. And our plan as of now is just to keep, keep co-sleeping, you know, with the baby and, and see what happens. Yeah. That, my sister's doing that right now. She, there's yeah. people in her bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think a lot of people do that. Um, maybe yeah. tell us about how this pregnancy has been different or um, anything you're doing differently or like ways that you're planning for the birth or impending postpartum? Um, 
yeah throughout this time yeah I, I'd be happy to I and I, I just remembered I want to circle back to one thing if you don't mind about the work and motherhood um something that I also uh learned or that I, I had an intuitive sense about but that was confirmed to me with the research that I the reading that I did on more indigenous forms of parenting um was that this like separation we have in our society between work and motherhood is like a very, it's a very manufactured separation. Like, you know, either you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a working mom. Um, when in fact, in more indigenous cultures, because the nature of the work is different than the nature of the work in modern society, you know, they're not like staring at computers all day necessarily. The nature of the work is such that mothers always worked there wasn't like this separation, like you were a mom and you worked, like you gathered nuts and berries and you got food and you made stuff. And, and the children were sort of taken care of by older children and you, and it was a much more communal thing. And there just wasn't as much separation between work life and home life. Um, and that really resonates with me. And obviously I, I can't, necessarily bring my child to work with me. I haven't really been successful at doing that. Um, but it was important to me to keep working outside the home. Um, so, so I did after about three and a half months, I went back to work at the Shala and I'm, I'm really fortunate that we're in a financial position where I could hire some help to allow me to do that. Um, but yeah, for me, that, that's been, it's been really important also, you know, having a daughter to show her that mama has things that she contributes to in the world, in addition to being your mom, you know, I want her to, I want her to have a real uh, experience of that from early childhood. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, so that's that piece. And then uh, this pregnancy, uh, I think my, my experience of it is that my body is just much more primed already from having been pregnant once. And so everything seems to have been easier, which I'm, I'm really glad about. Um, my sickness wasn't as intense and it ended sooner as well, you know, ended at about 16 weeks or so. And I had a really nice second trimester. I never really had that experience the first time, you know, that second trimester, like really sweet spot, but I did have that experience this time, which was really nice. Uh, and now in my third, uh, third trimester and I'm getting bigger. So I'm starting to get a little more comfortable, but that's to be expected. And this time we are planning on a home birth supported by a midwife based on our last experience. So, so that I'm looking forward to to having that opportunity to perhaps deliver at home as long as it's safe. And we have a midwife working with a midwife that we very much trust to, to hold that space for us and to ensure that both um, I and the baby, you know, remain safe. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm starting to get a little nervous about being in labor again, <laughs> you know, um, because like I said, I don't have visceral memories of the physical sensations. I just have memories of how difficult it was. And so I'm starting to feel like, okay, well, you know, here we go. I like having a kid. I feel like I've said this a bunch of times recently is having a kid is like jumping off a cliff. You just do it. You don't really like know what's going to happen. You just do it. And so it feels like that again, it's like, it feels like jumping off a cliff and just trusting that some sort of parachute is going to appear and that we'll have a soft landing. So is there any like special thing you're doing to prepare your home for the birth or you have like a space picked out or um i we haven't done anything yet but um i think our midwife will come over um, around 36 weeks and make sure that the space looks good and will walk us through the preparatory steps that we need to take last time i delivered i labored just on our bed so i'm imagining that that that'll be the case again although now we have another twin bed right next to my bed so that would where my daughter sleeps so we'll probably have to move that out of the way because <laughs> basically our entire floor is just bed now <laughs> um and no you're not planning on like a tub or anything like that 
Um, I, you know, it's funny. I, I have not felt super called to do the water birth. Um, last time I, last time I was in labor, I didn't want to be in water at all. I didn't even want to be in the shower, which was really interesting to me because I love water normally. Um, but I, during labor, I didn't, I didn't want that at all this time. Um, it, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe I could at least, you know, be in my own tub at home just for maybe for some pain relief or something or the shower. Um, but I imagine, I imagine that I won't deliver in the, in a tub. Did you deliver in a tub? I did. And, and I, but I can really relate to thinking that like, maybe you would want something like, I thought that I would want people like pushing, like giving me some pressure or massage or uh-huh. my back. And I was like, everybody get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> right. I, yeah. So I, I really, I feel like labor land that being in that altered state, it's just, you are so close to like yourself. Like this yes. is what I yeah. really need in this moment. And yes. yeah, I mean, so if, yeah, I mean, I, I did feel, I, I really love taking baths and I, anytime that I would have my period, I always would want to mm-hmm. take a bath or like have some kind of warm yeah something um, on my belly. So I felt like that would be something that I liked, but yeah, you never know. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> Until yeah. you're in it. Um, do you I have, have I had this time? Well, no, we're not having a doula this time. We're just having the midwives. Um, my husband was my biggest support uh, during labor. So I think the two of us can handle it. Um, we are planning on sending Thavi away to a friend's house when I'm in labor. Cause I don't, I don't think that I could, I know some women have their other kids around if they're planning to do home birth, but I don't think I could manage, um, manage that, like t- taking care of a toddler while being in labor. Yeah, <laughs> or even, I, I, I just, I also, <laughs> I think it would be a little traumatic for her. She's, she like we've always been very connected I think that she would be concerned for me and I don't really want to put her in that position yeah I mean that that makes sense I I think that is something that a lot of women have to think about like what you know you don't want to but yeah it's like age appropriate exposure exactly Exactly. a little too soon (laughs) yeah (laughs) even something you know like during labor I, I don't know about you but I was making a lot of noise like growling exactly yeah yeah roaring yeah. and um I mean from the outside especially to a child I'm sure that could seem alarming like what is going on with my mommy you know yes well we have yes and and that, that's exactly right I, I made a lot of noise as well when I was in labor and um and Thavi's she's just always very she's very empathetic and I remember early on in this pregnancy, we were driving home from the airport. We had a friend pick us up and I got really nauseous in the back seat and I actually had to have the car pull over and I puked out the side of the car and that just, and she was there. So she saw it. And just that whole experience even like brought tears to her eyes, just seeing me like throw up. (laughs) So, so I don't, I don't want to put her in the position of having to hear my labor pains. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> but she is excited. She's excited to be a big sister, which is uh, really sweet to watch. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I'm still really yeah. good. I don't know if you have siblings, but I'm still really good friends with. I do. Family. I have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I have. A, I have a younger sister. Yeah. Yeah. Is your sister older or younger? She's older. She's yeah, like two and a half, three years older. Yeah. Yeah. So we're very, she's with my baby right now, actually. Oh, that's so sweet. So (laughs) is there anything else that you'd like to share about pregnancy or postpartum birth, uh, motherhood? Gosh, um, I just think motherhood is, I just think motherhood is something to be revered, you know, and I don't know that in our society, we really do a very good job at revering motherhood. It is, um, for me, has been the ultimate practice and growth and connection and love. Um, And I feel like, yeah, it's just incredibly transformational. And I hope that, uh, that we can view it that way, you know, that the work you're doing, like in, in, in putting this podcast out there is just 
that we can start to uh, view the work that women do, especially, you know, the work that mothers do as truly transformational. I mean, I, I, I think mothering transforms societies. Mothering well transforms societies. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of talking with you. It's like, you know, dropping a little pebble into a lake and, and, and letting those ripples just, you know, ripple out. Uh, just planting this little seed that like, hey, we're here. Mothers are here. We're doing, we're, we're doing it, you know. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's a really beautiful place to end our chat today, I think. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast so that you'll be notified of future episodes as they're published. And also, if you can give us a rating and a review, this will help other people to find the podcast. Thanks again. Till next time.